This podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today's guest has been in the leather community since the 80s and has called Los Angeles his home since 1988. He also holds the title of Mr. Sister Leather 2012. Get ready for some more Leather Talk. This is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today we have Tom. Hi, Tom. Hi, Brandon. <laughs> How are you today? I'm pretty good. I've got a man here in my dungeon space <laughs> with all this professional audio equipment who wants to talk to me, so things are looking up. <laughs> so those of you who can't see us, because this is just audio, um, I was invited to do a recording in uh, my first dungeon space, so this is interesting, Tom. <laughs> Uh, for those who might not be familiar with you, would you mind just giving us a little brief snapshot of who you are? Sure. My name is Tom. I am a gay-identified male with those pronouns, and I have lived in Los Angeles since 1988. I have been into leather since before I got here. I had an interest in it anyway before that, and... I'm married, and my husband is upstairs right now. Are you uh, like? Are you legally married? Oh yeah. Oh nice. We got married three times. Okay, <laughs> third time's the charm. <laughs> well, the first time was domestic partnership. We had okay. a celebrate that we had at a at a sex party sex party in La Mesa. Yeah, yeah, we had an officiant there. And, wow. And Dave was chewing on the officiant's husband's butt. <laughs> while we were filling out paperwork and having champagne. And there are like 150 guys having a sex party in this guy's backyard. Oh my uh, God. Rubber dog. Rubber dog's backyard. And uh, that was the first one. And then the second one was um, in a quickie wedding chapel up in Moore Park and probably Studio City on a good Friday. And uh, a few days. And then I decided to have some work done. Uh, the next week so i had that done and then a few months later after i recuperated from having that work done friends of ours threw us a renewal of vows in the backyard of their beautiful pasadena home and we had about 90 guests many people that you know who were there and, and came no to celebrate at this one no 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 it was very hot um sister unity divine was one of the officiants and the one of the two hosts was also the other officiant but I had a, we had a cake and uh, flowers. Leo did flowers and we kept trying to keep everything in the community and people were lovely. And I never in my life thought I would experience such a thing. Wow. So on my Facebook page, that's the, that's our, been the same picture. I don't change my picture. <laughs> it's like, no, I like that picture. That's, that's us. So yeah. So three times. Wow. That's mm -hmm. awesome. I can't imagine getting married at a sex party, but it sounds awesome. It was a good way to start. <laughs> so let's uh, talk a little bit about you. I always like to start off with kind of like an origin story. Where did you, did you grow up in Los Angeles or where are you originally from? Originally, I am from Michigan. I was born very near the state capital that was occupied by those uh, MAGA yahoos uh, over the last couple times, a few months. Okay. Um, I got out of Michigan about 1977-78 and ended up spending a few years in the Chapel Hill, North Carolina area and the surrounding countryside. I got a degree from UNC Chapel Hill. I went to school with Michael Jordan back in that era. Nice. And... Then I lived in a pre-Civil War farmhouse south of Chapel Hill, out in the middle of the North Carolina countryside, next to the moonshiners and the Baptist ministers and the Klan. And then fortune smiled on me, and I was able to continue my journey out here to Hollywood. Wow. So that's why I got here in 1988. And what brought you out here? Oh, I had always, 
I wanted to be an animator for Walt Disney when I was seven years old. Unfortunately, I can't draw. Um, that was a drawback. Uh, yeah. that's, a, that's a drawing joke. A little bit. Um, but I came uh, out here and also because I wanted to get as far away from Michigan as possible and I ran out of land. So LA, actually LA had always appealed to me. I came through here as a child, as a 10 year old, very quickly with my family in a trailer. And I remember seeing a, um, a man, I had been to Disneyland and I remember seeing a mannequin in a store window with a topless bathing suit in it. And I had seen that topless bathing suit in, back in Life magazine. And I just knew right then and my, my little gayness, my little gay heart was just like, ah, I have to come back here. I have to come back here. <laughs> and it took me 25 years, but I made it. Wow. Um, so, and then I've just been out here ever since. So how old were you when you realized that you were gay? Did you always know? I've been thinking about this. The word gay, I, I'm... Or same-gender well, attracting. Oh, I remember the very first time there was a boy named in my neighborhood, a old, slightly older boy named Gary Sams. And I was probably eight years old, and we were playing baseball or something out in the field. And I noticed that he had hair growing around his ankles. It was the inside of his right ankle. I'm eight years old. And I can still see this image. And there was something that was just very tingly and special about that, that I just really, really liked. I think I became aware. I mean, I was probably sexualized a little early. I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional. It wasn't a full-blown thing, but... Needless to say, I discovered my dick in second grade, and I haven't let go since. <laughs> um, Would you consider that your first sexual experience? Well, it to me, it was like an awakening. There were things that I would see that were arousing. Um, it's hard to say, you know, the visual, visual imagery and things like that, particularly of pictures of nude men or semi-nude men or shirtless men even, were very hard to find. Um, the back of life magazine with uh, California boys on skateboards out at Venice Beach, you know, in their little board shorts and they're, they're shirtless and they're thin, which I wasn't, and they're blonde and, you know, just anything, any mm-hmm. kind of. And I lived really near Michigan State University. So every year the, the freshmen, you know, who were like big grown-ups to me, the freshmen would come back. So there are all kinds of men to look at. And I knew I just liked looking at men. And then the fantasies evolved. You know, I was an instigator. I was a little jerk-off instigator in my among my friends. You know, we're camping over and, you know, how boys experiment and whatever. I guess that's never really stopped either. So I guess in my narrative, I'd say I was about 12 years old when I read Last Exit to Brooklyn by Hubert Selby Jr. And if anyone who's familiar with that novel knows, it was a motion picture made of it as well with Jennifer Jason Lee. It was a very graphic description of New York City homosexuals in the 50s. And, uh, oh, a red spangled G. I can just, I see the images, you know, a red spangled G string. There was a story about that. And, and the, I think the thing that really got me was like, this guy was sucking his lover's cock and wondering if he was tasting the shit of his rival on his lover's cock. Oh, my God. Yeah, Hubert Selby Jr. No, this is a serious novel. There's this no is, holding back. And you no, you have to look 12. this up. You just have to look at Last Exit to Brooklyn. Just just Google it. And and you'll see that this... Yeah, I was reading this. How do you find a book like this? My, it was my older brother's. He, he had it. Is uh, he gay? No, 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 no. He's tremendously straight. We're, we're cut from the same bolt of cloth, but way at different ends. Okay. So the warp and woof is quite di- <laughs> distinctly different. Yeah, childhood was just like... I think self-medicating with dopamine and orgasms. Mm-hmm. Um, it was stressful. Have you had a sexual experience with a woman? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, it's been a long time. I've earned my Kinsey 6 rating back. It took, <laughs> it took me 40 years, but I earned it back. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, there was just nothing there. You know, I, I, I only dated a couple times in high school. You know, I took girls out and I did everything a, boy, a nice boy was supposed to do on a date. And then I got through with that and went, that was painful and awkward. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then I'd go back and organize my friends into, you know, circle jerks or, you know, <laughs> you have to realize this was a long time ago. This is a great, this is back in the 60s. So what was your first sexual experience with a boy? Do you even remember that? I can kind of see, some, I'm going to say elementary school. 
I can't I can't specify a grade anymore. It's been too long ago. Mm-hmm. But I know that there, there was always there was always something. Yeah, but more like I there was in high school. There was one boy in high school, but and I graduated high school and went to Europe for eighty eight days, fifty years ago this summer, by the way, and came back a virgin. So it wasn't really oh. until I was back here that I had my. I mean, the first real sexual experience with a man beyond boys fooling around in high school or circle jerks um that story i know exactly well do tell uh, well i was 18 i mean i was i was an adult by that time I was, okay. I was 18 um got back from europe got a job at a motion picture lab that had an associated film production studio with it they did industrials what now crap you do you know Power PowerPoint searing crap like that, but it was 16 millimeter filmmaking, and that was to me that was the only access I had in my crappy town that I lived in. So it was like I loved it, and I got a tour as a wide-eyed student. And down in the basement at the editing bench was Dale, and Dale was sitting down there in his super tight white jeans, and had a pinky ring on that was probably filled with just rhinestones, but it was a giant fucking pinky ring. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I immediately my gate my little gaydar just went off. And and I don't know how he was, I mean, in his twenties. He had to be in his twenties at least. Uh, no, forty two. He was forty two. And you were eighteen. And I was eighteen. Yes, yeah, so wow. he was. He was forty two. And I was. I'm just coming back to me now. So I just was like, I about broke out in a sweat right there. Just so I mean, he looked at me, and it was like one of those cartoons where they they look at the bird, and then the bird looks like a cooked bird. Yeah. And then they come back to the regular bird, and then they look at him again, and it's like it's like a drumstick. He looked at me like that. You know, it's like, oh, chicken, you know. <laughs> so, of course, he befriended me, and, of course, he, um, and I willingly accepted his friendship. And uh, we, he got me a job at the Motion Picture Development Lab, Film Development Lab, which was another branch of this three-pronged company. And that's where I met Betty. It was a woman, a very cool woman that I met. But uh, Dale, um, Dale was very smooth. This was in, it was the election, and like a good groomer would, he came to my house and met my parents and took me over, and I voted in a presidential election for the first time for George McGovern. And then he took me back over to his house, and we were, the tension was so thick you could just, you know, cut it with a knife. And we're both laying out on the floor, and he's just like patient, it's like a cat, you know, creeping up on a bird. That's <laughs> patient, patient. But he was—he was very it's sweet. All building. He was—he was very sweet. There's nothing yeah. creepy or predatory about it at all. It was delightful. And he asked me if I—if I had a comb, and he said, "Well, give me your comb." And he wanted to comb my hair. Well, that was it. He touched me, and that was it. We were just all over each other, oh just making God. out. And 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 uh, oh, I'll tell you the whole thing. He 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 eventually got me in the bedroom and uh spread grape jelly on my ass and ate it off and fucked me <laughs> whoa after the you know so i figured that that the country re-elected richard nixon that night so we all got screwed <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i've ever heard of someone's like first sexual experience being with grape jelly and an election but there's a first time for everything i guess and it was my it was my journey i was i was launched on my journey and aramis wow. aramis cologne or as they call it fag mist fag mist aramis in the brown bottle i remember uh-huh. that that smell wow. and uh, oh i just felt so sophisticated taking a shot getting naked and taking a shower at his house and you know i was like i was just bursting with pride i wanted to tell all my friends that i had finally had sex you know well, they were all screwing girls and everything and i was like i finally did it and then i realized oh i don't think i can and that 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 we had a few more trysts, and then I think probably the smartest thing I ever did since I was still living at home, Michigan snowstorm, much like they're having right now. And um, I, Dale had lent me a book. Mm-hmm. And I said, I've got to return this book to Dale because I knew the storm was coming. So I get in my crappy little Dodge 60-something car and uh, drive all the way across Lansing, all the way from east of East Lansing, all through Lansing, and all the way to the west side of Lansing, territory I never went into, to get to his place, and managed to get my car stuck in a snowdrift right at his apartment building. (laughs) So I had to stay there all weekend during the storm. I was a good boy and called home, and my parents, my dad was like, oh, it's good, you know, it's fine, as long as we know where you are, that's okay. You stay there with your friend, because they had met him. Uh Uh-huh. 
totally naive. My parents had no fucking clue. What and they, you were just getting fucked all weekend. Well, he had his friends over. So here's these old, you know, imagine <laughs> this, this 18-year-old boy who's still very shy and, you know, horny is just all get out. And still, but it was like, oh, don't take my picture. You know, they said they wanted, you know, because he was like, I'm 42 and I've got an 18 year old down here, you know, come on, boys. So all the other gay men from the apartment complex would show up on the weekend. And I, I don't know, I'm sure, I can't remember exactly what happened, but I do just remember finally, finally feeling like, you know, I finally got laid in a way that was meaningful to me. Mm. It's a way that felt congruent with what my insides felt. As opposed to like dating girls in high school because you were supposed to and taking them to a movie and dinner and then taking them home and being a perfect gentleman. Yeah. Now, uh, did you have any struggles coming out as gay to your family? And, and was there an expectation there? Were they disappointed when you came out as, as gay to them? What, what, what was their reaction? You're not even scraping on the outer edges of the horror. Okay. Um, jumping right into this. I don't know how much of this I want to do. Um, you have to remember that I came out as a junior in high school in 1971. That's two years after Stonewall, which I never heard of Stonewall until I was living out here. Um, certain, well, I never heard of Stonewall when it happened. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. I, and it was also two years before the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from the list of mental illnesses. And I was completely and utterly alone. And I had been alone since the age of 12 when I read Last Exit to Brooklyn. So for five years, I had this horrible secret that engendered, I'm sure, tons of shame. Because as my therapists all tell me, shame is the name of the game. Mm -hmm. um, Yes, it was a horrible secret. I was the only one. I didn't know anybody else. I didn't know anything else. Anything that I, if I did read anything, it certainly wasn't very encouraging at that time. Um, I was just utterly alone. And I made the, one of the worst mistakes I ever made in my life was trusting my biological family, you know, which is a harsh thing to say, but it's true. I would have been better off just to keep my mouth shut particularly at that point in time. And I've just quietly made plans to get as far away as possible. Like I said, it took me 25 years to make it back to LA, but I finally did it. Did that relationship with your family ever change over the years? No. How do you navigate that? I mean, I, I'm just imagining... Self-medication and therapy. I mean, I just wonder how many people are listening, especially coming from your generation who may have gone through some of the same things i mean you know you're not alone oh no I, i'm sure I, you I, felt alone at that time i god i have to think back it's so long ago basically basically my life the things that drove me in terms of psychic survival mm -hmm. because of the situation that i was in and the people that were that I was in a relationship with in my family required the utmost of my time and energy to separate from. Um, it was very, it was made, I was pursued. I was stalked and pursued despite my hmm. efforts to remove myself from, from things that, that wasn't allowed to happen. So I was stalked and harassed and for, mm, I'd say conservative. From the time I came out to the time the abuser died, I'd say it was like 36 years wow. of constant rejection and constant harassment and constant denigration and verbal abuse. And um, yeah, same words over and 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 over again. It, it, uh, it was very challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, let's throw another wrench in there. Um, because at some point you discovered that you're also a kinky, perverted man. <laughs> I was a kinky, perverted boy. Okay. So at what point did you discover that this was a side of you? Oh, I started off with underwear. See, I can remember when the only underwear, underwear, I think in a rough trade right now and all the underwear they have. I, I can remember when the only kind of underwear that boys could buy were tidy whities mm -hmm. There was no color. 
I remember when color was introduced about 1966 by Jockey, Jockey Briefs, um, pretty much the same structure, probably, a, and I remember when Micro Briefs came out, <gasps> I thought it was going to plot Micro Briefs <laughs> and then Nylon. Uh, I had fantasies about trading briefs with the college boys that used, the Michigan State college boys that would come out to the woods behind our house to the, there were gravel pits. There was a, I, the, one of the things that saved me in this horrible, dreary scenario I've been spinning is that there was 300 acres of woods behind my house, and it held a plethora of territories and textures from spring-fed gravel pits. There were five of those, to marshlands, to bogs, to fields, uh, pine trees, forest, um, a farmhouse, railroad tracks, even an Indian burial mound. Maybe that's what it was. We called it the hill. So I had this place to go out and escape to. And I did a lot of escaping, um, just escaping the, the, the intractability of my adolescence because that was all I could do. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I finally discovered pot at 16 and, uh, began what would now be called getting your pot card. (laughs) It's just, I was just ahead of the game, you know, I was like, you were living on the edge the <laughs> very much, very much on the edge, a lot of anxiety, a, a lot of uh, t- totally all and all of this was utterly and completely unnecessary. That's I think the cosmic joke is, is that all of this was just like some horrible Victorian m- medical asylum, you know, for hysterical women or something, all the things the doctors used to do to women because they were women. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was all just so completely unnecessary, but it happened. And so, yeah, I was a kinky kid early. I mean, I loved to shit. Okay. Here's, here's factoid. I remember fifth grade, 1965. I'm, I'm ending fifth grade and I'll start sixth grade in 1965. And I had a Charlie, love this. <laughs> <laughs> a charlie brown desk calendar this i can't i can't believe i'm telling you this but that's all right um a charlie brown desk calendar and i would put a little x every time i jerked off on the calendar just real discreetly just a little act no one ever asked me what the little x was and sometimes there were one x and sometimes there were three x's and you know sometimes there were four x's on on a day um and I counted up at the end of the year, and I jerked off 500 times. Oh, my God. As, what would that be, 10, 11, 12, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, something like that. So, yeah, I was a very horny kid. I was a very, very horny kid. And I was driven by my, I suppose, by the circumstances that, because before I came out, there was the same dynamic. I just came out into a pre-existing home dynamic uh, that had always been a part of my life. Uh, that I was born into, d- couldn't do anything about. So, yeah, I spent an awful lot of time taking the edge off, as you say, you know, and and just seeking to self-soothe and and uh, self-care and yeah. So I just love jerking off. Yeah, <laughs> still do. <laughs> That's gonna be the the clip to for the video to promote. I just love jerking off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. So let's talk about your move here to Los Angeles and your discovery of leather. Um, I imagine that would have been one of your first like encounters with leather is when you moved to Los Angeles. No, actually one of the first encounters with leather I had was probably when I was still living with my parents as an adolescent. Cause like I said, I started off with an underwear fetish and I think I must have had a piece of maybe chamois or doe skin or something, but I was fashioning a, a I, oh God, I don't want to lie about this. I got to think about this for a second. Oh, no. Well, there's a sensual aspect to it. I have a leather garment, one of the first leather garments that I had, but I made it out here. I hand-stitched out of brown leather scraps a jockstrap. It's very mm-hmm. like caveman. It looks like, like a caveman thing. Okay. But I'm trying to think back... You have to remember back in the 60s, there were underground newspapers, okay, like the Berkeley Barb, of which I meant to bring the copy. I still have the copy upstairs. And one of the first times I saw something kinky, this was 19, had to be 67, 
Um, so I was in like seventh, between seventh and eighth grade, riding down into East Lansing to the you know, MSU, Michigan State University in the college town with the newsstands and, you know, all that kind of the college boys hanging out and stuff. And uh, in the Berkeley Barb, they used to have classified ads in the back, um, rent boys and so forth. And some of them were pictures. And there was a picture in there by the artist Sean, S-E-A-N. Okay. If you know who that is, he has a particular style of line drawing. Um, Tom of Finland Foundation can show you many examples of his work. And it was an ad, and it was a bottom tied up, and he had Christmas cards hooked to him, pinned, pinned, pinned. You know, it was a drawing. Wow. Right? But the, and it said like happy holidays, like it spelled out happy holidays or it spelled out Merry Christmas. So the guy was up there with all these, these cards, you know, with needles in, in him stuck to it, pinned to his body. Wow. So I'm seeing this in like seventh grade and I'm just like, what the fuck? That makes that's hot. You know, anything. You thought that was hot in seventh grade? Oh yeah. Oh wow. I mean, anything. You have to remember in 1967, you had the Summer of Love in San Francisco. You had Monterey Pop Festival with Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. The Beatles were going full blast. I mean, it was a time of revolution. It was a time of, you know, anti Vietnam. It was hippies. It was really what I realize now. I thought they were thin. They were just really skinny guys with long hair and beads and all those just enough older than me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't old enough to be a hippie, but I was old enough to jerk off to him. Okay. Okay. Um, and so that was that's why I like long hair. I'm gonna wear you know, like men who have like young guys who have beautiful long hair right now, it's like grow it, do it, have it now because it'll go away when you get older. Um It's interesting because you like kind of grew up at a a time where there was like a big liberal boom with a lot of Well, you had you you had Nixon, you had J. Edgar Hoover, you had the Kennedy assassination, she read Martin Luther King's assassination, Medgar yeah. Evers, Malcolm X. Uh, it was a time of, of turmoil. Um, it was a time of great change and upheaval. And it, inf- it certainly, as a, you know, as a middle school student, it certainly influenced me a great deal in, in what my values were. I, I was very anti-Vietnam. You know, I wasn't a flag-waving kid or anything like that. My parents were course because they were, i was raised in a republican household i was i was a total white republican household mm-hmm. this is set the standard right there you know midwestern white republican household and uh all that that entails or implies and um so no i was always the odd card out there was a lot of um rebellion in me probably s- starting about the age of 10 mm-hmm. um I like, you know, experimenting. I like getting away with things. I love going out in those woods that I described and getting naked and jerking off in a field. Just, I love, I love, I still love being naked outdoors, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's spiritual, you know, it's sexual and it's spiritual. It's all that together. And I I miss that. I enjoy places where I can still find that I can't do it here, obviously, in the middle of downtown Los Angeles. Although there is a bathhouse right not far from here. The Midtown Spa is not far, Midtown Spa is just a couple blocks over. I, I've heard. I've heard. Yeah, you. I've been there once, maybe twice. Um, but you have your own dungeon here. Yeah, I mean, it, really, I, I. This dungeon is uh, like my little room of solace. You know, it's just a quiet place. So yeah, I mean, the first, the first types of. I, mean, I was always looking for something. There was a lot of stuff going on. There was, you know, there was gay liberation. You know, I kind of knew about that a little bit and. Because I would read the Burgley Barb. I wouldn't bring them home, but I would, you know, have them. And I can remember thinking too, there were, um, I, they probably called, they were probably called models back then that you could rent, rent boys. Okay. And I remember thinking to myself, it literally, as it's like, a, say, a seventh grader, it's like, if I ever got to San Francisco, the first thing I'd do is I'd rent one of them. And did you? <laughs> no, I never, well, no, I came out here and just was trying to give it away, you know, and <laughs> so, did that instead. Um, I remember speaking earlier when I came over here a couple of weeks ago to talk about some other history stuff together. Um, you mentioned discovering the, um, why can't I think of the name? The Drummer Magazines. Yes, Drummer. And Drummer is definitely a, a, a turning point publication, which I actually received in 40 years ago, 1982. 
when I was still in college. I was in college at this point. I, I had a, a, I won't say long and distinguished, I'll just say long college career. It took me many years to finally get a degree. There was a lot of the, as you might imagine, situational things that kept me on the run, kept me on edge and kept me on the run during all those years that mm-hmm. led to me shifting around and struggling with identity and family and self and you know, my 20s in particular. I had some misadventures uh, early in the 70s trying to, trying to get away and I had to return, you know, all those sorts of things. And uh, time from that and other things. It was the 70s, you know, there were all sorts of things, new age this and that and the other. And, and uh, while I was in college in Chapel Hill, actually technically Carborough, I lived in Carborough, which was next to Chapel Hill, but I went to school in Chapel Hill. Uh, there was a man named Lightning Brown from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and he was probably about 50 at the time. Um, sexy, really sexy lawyer, activists, someone who would take on court cases and fight for the rights for gay rights and things like that. Um, and I'm sure we played, a, I know we played a couple of times, but I'm, I think it was he who left drummer issue number 50, 52 or 53 I came home from school one day and it was on my bed no handoff no just on the he bed. left it there for you yeah I used to think it was issue 30 but in the show that I did I realized it's like issue 53 or 52 or 53 it's the one with the greasy guys wrestling they're in blue swim trunks and they're wrestling in Crisco it's that cover and that was just an immediate swing you know I mean that I was hooked right right from there so that's 40 years ago I guess um, and I did a lot of self-play while I was in North Carolina. I, I, coming from the background that I've described, I had uh, to say that I had trust issues would be, um, like <laughs> saying that the, you know, the, the, the web, the web telescope is a nice kite. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just interesting to me, like all of the, the ways that you were able to reach out and find other gay people i mean nowadays I, we have computers we have social media we have our cell phones like if i wanted to find another gay person down the street i could find them within a hundred feet and it'll tell me exactly where there are on my phone like that's something that you didn't have and you really had to like find these resources on- they're, they're, they were called gay bars <laughs> Well, I used mean, the, to, people used to go to them. The drummer, the drummer magazine, the the Rent Boys. Did you ever do the? Um, were you mail in to connect no, with someone? No, I. I mean, I. I the classified the for your listeners who might be uh, unfamiliar. In the back of these magazines, they would have classified ads that you could put in, looking for with all the abbreviations BDSM or WS or you know whatever you whatever it was SM. Um, and you would pay money to the magazine. They would eventually publish your ad. Eventually, the magazine would come out. You would read the someone would read the ad. They would write a letter of their interest, which they would mail back to the magazine in an anonymous remailer. And then you would eventually receive a piece of snail mail. And this is how correspondences went on. That's how people hooked up with each other. And even then, in some of my experiences in Avatar, from things classes we've had, those connections, even though they might have gone on for a long time, turned out horribly wrong. Turn out people were hooking up with psychos, you know, yeah. that just would string them along through the mail. Same, same stuff, just now it happens faster. You can get killed yeah. on a grinder date faster than you could get killed through the classifieds in the back of a drummer magazine. Right. right. <laughs> you know, hopefully that doesn't happen to anyone <laughs> anywhere. Um, but Drummer was the Bible. It was published from 1975 to 1999. They had 214 issues. It's being republished now, I think the fourth issue there's the same numbering system so 14 15 16 17 18 i think drummer 218 is on the shelves right now and um it's in a much larger format it's it's modernized but the the uh the intent behind it is still the same it's by the same men who remember the magazine from Mm -hmm. 20 years ago and there are still people there's still a man named jack fritcher who's bless his heart is still alive and you know people who can give oral histories of drummer magazine I have all but two of the original press run. I need I need issue 203. I need issue 203 and issue 209. So if anybody has drummer issue 203 or 209, please.
please contact Brandon. <laughs> As he eats the mic. Oh my gosh. Um, so the drummer magazine was really like a Bible for you. Oh, it so. was it was for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, other publications came out like Dungeon Master, which had which had a lot of how to, like how to build equipment, how to build frames and suspension frames and things like that, and how to hang slings and all the stuff. Um, bondage, how to do bondage, and uh, Dungeon Master is real good. Drummer had photography in it and a lot of you know one hand fiction as they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and ads for poppers. Ad, poppers kept that magazine afloat for years. You know, poppers. Oh, Rush. Yeah, Rush. Ads okay. for yellow bottle, classic bottles of Rush. Yeah. I've heard they're not the same today. Oh no! That? Oh no! No no no! That's it's a, it's a uh, a little sidebar. I know. I've heard some young people today say, "Oh, I hate poppers." It's like probably with what you're breathing today, I would hate them too. You know, yeah, pop, poppers are original amyl nitrate. Uh, which was a heart medication. It's still used. The only reason that you can't get it in poppers is because in the FDA in the 80s, let's say early 80s, thought that poppers caused AIDS. This was back in the early 80s. Okay, so in the hysteria, the early AIDS hysteria, Henry Waxman, who was a congressman here from uh, Southern California and other people, got a bill and got the FDA to reclassify amyl nitrate uh, and make an exception in its use for euphoric purposes. You could use it for this, you could use it for that, but you could not use it for euphoric purposes. How interesting. And that's why it's still classified today. So what happened is the manufacturers would play this little chemical make game and that then they had acyl, not amyl, but acyl nitrates. And so they changed the recipe just enough so that it wasn't the forbidden product. It was very similar and had the same effect. Mm. And so as politicians played football with our sexuality through showing how tough they were, these laws would keep shifting, and so the chemical recipes kept shifting. I don't know what you can get today. If you're lucky, um, you'll find someone who's making their own. Mm-hmm. You know, you just find, like, plain unlabeled bottles. Um, but... You know, it's. I saw the story. It's all the same stuff. It doesn't matter what label it is. It all comes out of one tank you know, somewhere in the Midwest, from from Pacific distributors or you know wherever it was. So, um, but I, I, I mean, <laughs> listen. I remember when I started doing poppers. It was under a disco ball, and that new girl Donna Summer was singing "Last Dance." Okay, <laughs> in its original release. So I, I, I come at it honestly. Hey, mm-hmm. the only time I've tried poppers, I've gotten headaches, and I'm just like, eh. That's probably why. I mean, the real stuff wouldn't do it. <laughs> but it's, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean. So at what point did you become connected with any sense of the leather community? I mean, outside of your bedroom and the drummer magazine. Not in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a bar in Raleigh that I would go to. Um, God, was it called the Rawhide or? So, but it was very. But I mean, I want to go back for a moment. You, you you asking about how did I connect with people? And I got off on this tangent about the sure. classified ads. But to tell you what I did back in those days, in my college days in North Carolina, you went to bars. Mm. And you met someone that you didn't know. And if you liked them and you sat there and you had some beers and you played some pool, and if you felt some energy and some chemistry, you'd go home and trick, you know? And You couldn't just swipe left? No, you couldn't just swipe left. You you, <laughs> you might get a blowjob in the parking lot after the bar closed. <laughs> but no, people were not, well, I can't say that. I was going to say people aren't as disposable as they are now, but unfortunately because of my great fear of any kind of relationship or anything like that. My, my closet uh, was meant no boyfriends, no relationship, not as long as the abuser was around, mm. from, not as long as the family was still alive and breathing. Um, no, I never even considered that to be a possible. I mean, the, that, that cloud followed me through mm. all the fun and all the sex that I had. Every time that I would come back from a good time, there'd always be that same bad time there waiting for me, usually on the answering machine. So no, no boyfriends, no nothing like that at all. Just 
So you mean like they hired like a private investigator to follow you around and figure it, out what it you're could, doing? It could have gone to that had had I not had I not given in and and reestablished communication. Mm-hmm. Yes, I thoroughly expected to have police at my door or private investigators at my door. That sort of it was that level of stalking that there would wow. be no just let him go, just leave him alone. <clears throat> that that never happened. Yeah. Not until the not until the 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 abuser died. Oh. Um which is why I say 36 years. It went on from the time I came out until the time the abuser died was 36 years. Wow. And then it still took and that's <laughs> I know I liken that period immediately after that again back to the 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 uh, um, foghorn leghorn and the dog, you know, where he's grabbing the dog up and puts the puts the bucket over his head and goes bam 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 like that and takes it off and the dog's head's going whoa well I I was in that kind of psychic state for a few years after the abuser died I needed a little time to kind of find out what life was like without that constant threat yeah uh, and that and the constant 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 triggering which of course had become a part of my own inner voice um, because it was repeated over and over and over and over and over again in handwriting and actions and deeds and you know the same curses the same curse that had been put on me for being who i was was it was endless i mean i can imagine after 36 years that being like a huge factor in how you live your everyday life even once they were gone you think yeah Maybe. I mean, does that carry over to today, or do you feel like you've worked through some of those issues? To answer your question, I have worked through many of these issues because I am, in fact, still here today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was no escaping it. There was no escaping that. No. No. So, anyway. Um, the gay bars. Fucking sex. <laughs> Come. <laughs> Yeah, I just what whatever it was, you know, whatever like so so drummer opened up this whole world to me and I'm had lots of experiences. I had some kind of, you know, experiences in North Carolina when I lived in the farmhouse, that was great. I was on 100 acres of land and um out in the countryside and I I most m- many men that I have met out here over the years have had some sort of master. Some they've been in in training in some sort of formal relationship where they have been put through their paces and so on and so forth. And I never had that. Hmm. I basically played both roles with myself, you know, and just because I was so fucking horny for it, and um, so I beat my own balls, you know, that that sort of thing, inflict pain on myself, which was very fitting uh, to my psyche at the time. And um, and got off on it, you know. Mm-hmm. Shot big loads, and so entertained myself out on that big farm, <laughs> <laughs> and had people over occasionally. Um, and it was kind of the same thing out here. Uh, I had a little my little tiny the tiniest walk in closet you could have up in the Hollywood Hills when I first moved here, and that was my little. BDSM room where I could go and close the door and make you know smack around and make some smacking noises and the neighbors wouldn't hear on creating space and uh, that I think that that I'm going to jump right ahead a little bit but sure. one of the things that I talk about with people is is creating sacred male space um, and that that's a much bigger issue that I'll talk about more but this relates to it this is where that urge comes from when I talk about sacred male space I mean a space where you feel safe to be even with yourself, mm-hmm. just alone with yourself, let alone with other people, where you can express your sexuality, even if it involves, you know, pain or infliction or any, you know, anything like that, anything, whatever you want to do, whatever the fuck you want to do, um, that you need that safe space. Yeah. And in, in a crowded world filled with cameras nowadays, um, I think that that has a very chilling effect on on people, certainly on the freedoms that we would have felt before to go places and do things without feeling like maybe somebody's watching. Yeah. You know, not watching in a good way, like they're paying you money to watch you, which is surveilled. There's a difference between people watching. I don't mind if people watch. I don't like, I don't like being surveilled. Well, that's the thing. Like if you were at a gay bar or a leather bar and you were getting bound and tied up and spanked and flogged and all this stuff and everybody who was there in 1980 
was experiencing that with you. That was a moment that that you guys were experiencing experiencing together. You as a the person up there, them as the the spectators. But nowadays, people have phones that can record you in an instant. And t- 10, 20 years down the road, that footage could be used against you. Phones have ruined leather bars. I'll just tell you right now, fucking phone. And I'm, I have a phone. I'm hooked on my phone. So it's, it's, there's no holier than thou with this, but phones ruined leather bars, Mm. um, phones and civilians, um, who, who, who I can't say don't belong there because everybody belongs someplace and things change and societies evolve. But back in the day, the life I remember from my youth, youthier, my youthier parts, um, was definitely about men in some seedy bar, the seedier the better, really, with a pool table and and God, there was a place in Durham called the Clowns Inn, and it was an eight foot ceiling and it had paneling like your bad recreation room in the basement, you know, basement <laughs> ball paneling all around, yeah. and fucking clowns painted on velvet and ceramic clowns and some couple of old queens who were chain smokers, you know, everything smelled of nicotine in the bars because of course you smoked in them. And um, pool tables, worn out pool tables and and uh, shoddy bathrooms. You know, I mean, it was perfect. It was brilliant. It was yeah. wonderful. So you'd meet someone there and, you know, and go home. And I was very fortunate. I had good instincts about people. I never had any, no, I never had any problems with anybody ever. And I'd get a lot of people give me their phone number and it would go in a little little dish that I had. And I just ended up that period of my life with a bunch of phone numbers, first names and phone numbers who I had no idea who they were in this dish from all the tricks that I had over. Because having a relationship, at even at that point in my life, which was into my early 30s, was still completely forbidden. Completely. Oh, my God, no. <sighs> what if they found out? I was living 700 miles away in another state. And, and, still and about what that. if they find and fear? Oh, total fear, total abject fear kept me alone and isolated for years. Um, uh, years, in fact, until the abuse, I never had a relationship until the abuser after the abuser died, a year before the abuser died. I, Dave and I met, but even that year was filled with just constant barrage and attack against my brother, you know, nailing him, making his life miserable. And he'd call me because my father was already dead. <laughs> No, he he used to do it, and then the same dynamic kept repeating itself with my brother. And he's like, "Would you call her? No, call her, please. All she does is call me and ask me questions. I say, go ask Tom about his life. Don't ask me. And you know, just shit like that, just constantly, constantly. And so, um, <laughs> oh dear, that's too dark. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, the we'll dr- just. Where's we'll, the alcohol? <laughs> <laughs> now, do you understand? <laughs> Came down here without a fucking bottle of wine. I don't know what I was thinking about. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, that experience that you describe being in a bar, seedy and raunchy and whatever it is that it was for you, is that available to people nowadays anywhere in any circumstance? Can it be? Only, I think, at this point, in a kind of performative sense. Not really. Yeah, things can happen. Things, I mean, I wouldn't say any, I wouldn't name any particular places right now or anything, but I think it just depends on the venue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think back on the di- back in the day when before phones uh it was if it was an election year if it was an election year the bars got rated more particularly in LA mm-hmm. um i can remember when a group of tavern owners in silver lake sued james hahn the mayor for police arrest records and it came out in the la times that gay bars represented 1% of the total amount of bars in los angeles county but they represented 2% of the enforcements, mm. which means wow. that it showed that they were targeting us. Yeah. Okay. And that's the information that the mayor didn't want to give out back in the, this was back people who Charlie would remember this, um, the tavern owners back in the, so since I've been here, yeah. you know, since I've been here and then different, this, you know, I feel bad for kids born probably after 95, 
you know, and I'm thinking 9-11, 9-11 kids. And now, now you've got yeah. grown-ups coming up post 9-11 and, and they have no idea that they live in a police state, you know, that, that their lives are just utterly and forever going to never be like what it was before 9-11. Um, and with technology that people so gladly throw their data to every day, just like I do, uh, it's an evolution into a different kind of society and our rights and the politics though, haven't kept up. I mean, they have, but they could just as easily go away again, mm -hmm. you know, and this technology could be put to a perverse use to, you know, target. It could come right back and bite you right through the keyboard. I mean, I feel like nowadays people are afraid to say what they think because if they do, and God forbid they say something that is not 100% informed or then they're canceled and people lose their livelihoods and their jobs over it when really it's okay for people to be wrong sometimes. And when they discover they're wrong and they say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that I was wrong. Thank you for pointing that out. There's no coming back. There's no path to accountability. And I mean, it's, I don't know if you know exactly what I mean, what I'm talking about. Oh, but it's I do. A constant, That's why I waited two years to do this. It's a constant fear. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of sad because I think it just, it throws people into echo chambers. Well, you certainly retreat. I mean, yeah. I mean, some people, I suppose, like engaging with strangers and fighting with strangers. I certainly don't. I, I just don't, I don't engage that way. And I think what's lacking is, I think we're all lacking in empathy. I, I think throughout the country. Um, I think that's one of the reasons. And I think that we are all victims of the hate industry. I've really come to see social media. Uh, my social media life isn't like that because it's private and it's curated. But as I read more about the effects of Facebook has on, on groups and the way people are manipulated, it's like, wait a minute, there's a reason why all this crap's going on because they're making shitloads of money off of this, mm -hmm. making money off of hate. And I think that works in all realms. I think that works across everybody. You know, everybody can hate somebody else and start stuff up and stir people up and say, give me money and this and that and the other thing. And uh, there, there's no, n nobody owns the, <laughs> nobody owns that game completely. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I think it's a terrible thing. I, I, I think that's the reason our country is so wounded right now. The thing is, as a gay population, and I'm just going to say gay because to me, queer is a microaggression. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Sorry, kids. <laughs> but when I grew up, where queer was one of the worst things you could be called, and I understand you have reclaimed the word, and I'm and I'm proud of that, and I'm happy. But you came in from a generation where that wasn't the that case. That you know, I mean, people talk about microaggressions. I actually feel microaggressions every time I see and hear the word. You know, and I have yeah. to stop and realize it's like, okay, this is another generation, and they have reclaimed this word, and that's a good thing because it means that they're establishing themselves. So I just, you, you kind of quit being so easily offended and just buck up, Sonny, you know, just realize that, that not, you know, no, the world is not fair and not everybody's going to be nice to you. And, you know, it, it, cancel culture goes everywhere yeah, on all sides. And it, nobody's and nobody, nobody is immune. Yeah. Nobody's immune from it. And nobody is immune to falling prey to it either. And I, I would put myself in there too. Um, these are, we're being manipulated by artificial intelligence that understands our basis human drives mm -hmm. and those have been exploited and manipulated however in this process and in an answer to that i would only say that if there's anything to do this year it would be to have fundraisers to support state attorney general's candidates who are opposing these fascists that are running and to look out for your local election boards uh, if you're courageous enough to stand up and be part of the election process, this is where our democracy is crumbling, is in the state attorney generals and the election boards and the election workers, because the nonpartisan nature of that job is being overrun in a civil war by fascists who want to take control of the vote, take control of our vote. If you're following this false elector story that the, they're investigating right now, this is the plan. And our rights... As queer people, I will use the word if necessary, 
are at stake. Mm-hmm. You know, marriage is gay marriage, same sex marriage is a very, very new concept. You know, Tyler versus Texas. And if you don't know what Tyler versus Texas was, you better learn. Um, because that was only 2003. Those are all could be reversed by the Supreme Court, by this Supreme Court. I mean, abortion's been around for 50 years, and that's going to go away. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's we're true. next. We're next. And I think, in terms of unity in this community, that we need to stop, you know, you need to look up, like, look up, just like the movie, look up, uh, and, and look ahead and, and work everybody beyond the sexual, into the political. If there's going to be a political thing, I think we've got to look at what's happening this summer, this year, before we get into the midterms, because they're going to have those people are going to be elected. And once they're elected, we're fucked. You're going to have votes are going to be tipped and turned and everywhere else. And it cuts right to the core of our democracy and our rights and the things that maybe younger people don't understand whose shoulders they're standing upon and what it took to get where we are today to feel free enough to sit here as a kinky pervert in my dungeon and admit it publicly in a recording that could be played or downloaded by anybody anywhere and, and potentially used against me at some future date. You know, those are all realities that can happen in our world when we get past our notion of American exceptionalism and realize that we're just another country that fucks up and is always at war and is good for some people and not good for other people. And we're in favor right now, but that could easily change. That could easily change. So I think that the best thing to do is to be aware and stand up and fight, you know, for our democracy in one way or another. Have some, you know, I, I just do, I, I'll, I'll stop on that one because I, I know I can keep going on with it, but I think our ability to be queer is being trimmed back over and over again. I think Kamala Harris and her, her, her SESTA, um, when all the, all the ads went away, you know, that was, oh, human trafficking. Okay, human trafficking goes on, but a poorly written piece of legislation also wiped out LGBTQ communication as well. You know, it put a crimp in social media companies that were afraid to put on anything controversial like our lives. Suddenly our life, particularly as leather people, you know, in, in particular because we're so out there because, you know, you put on a, a cap and someone goes, oh my God, you're into leather. And, you know, it, it, it's a lot of us who really, you know, are out there in our dress and things and don't blend in are the ones that are the, the low-hanging fruit or the easy targets. Yeah. Um, so I would hope that we could find an ability to be more compassionate with members within our own community who may or may not understand another part of our community's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's an L, there's a G, there's a B, there's a T, there's a Q. And I lose track after that, but that's that's enough letters right there. That all of these represent very, di- very different types of people. We've all just been lumped together in this convenient acronym for mass media purposes. And so that people don't have to say homosexuals or, you know, lesbians all the time. They can just say LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the news lady, the lady on the 6 o'clock news can say that and feel comfortable about it. You know, we would accommodate that, but we all know that there can be differences and conflicts between these five letters as well and that we can spend our time attacking each other over things sexual things over political things over identity things over you know all kinds of things and and across the entire spectrum of our being which is everybody because we're we're inclusive of every race and every kind of person and every range of spectrum of everything that somehow i don't know maybe maybe a day of atonement you know i think where we all forgive one another you know god i'm sorry i fucked up that project with you last year i'm sorry i didn't mean to say that or whatever it is and that we find a way to come together right now and focus on on preserving our entire culture instead of picking at each other over little things i mean it sounds to me like you come from a time where you witnessed what it took to get us as a community where we are today and essentially what you're saying is that you see that very easily potentially falling apart. Like the fragility of it is 
it's, it's more fragile ephemeral. Than... It's ephemeral. Our, our culture is ephemeral. That's why we yeah. have an archive to put it in, because it will be flushed, washed, burned, tossed, buried, and destroyed. There are millions of people in this country who would, who would tell me that Jesus told me to kill you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that is always going to be a part of our culture. You know, we're in the winning percentages these days, but throwing a little famine, you know, throwing a little authoritarian takeover of the federal government, the destruction of elections, you know, um, more proud boys, more, you know, um, soft targets like pride parades. I mean, it all, it's, people can do the math. You've seen it all coming. Mm -hmm. Don't think it can't happen to you. And, I, and I'm sorry, you know, I'll, I'll tell a dirty story after this. I'll tell a personal <laughs> dirty story after this. <laughs> Something greasy and nasty just to make up for it. But it's, it's you know, it's it's like, seriously, it's like, yeah. this is, you know, they're not, they're not kidding. They're not shitting around when they say that it's a threat to our democracy. So I, you know, and I'm old, you know, it's like, I don't know how many years I've got left. I hope of quite a few, but, you know, and I think of young people and it's like you, particularly the post 9-11 ones that come up and they just... It's like, oh my God, you you guys, you know, you've, you're smart and clever and you're techno savvy like crazy, and you know all these things, and and you you don't understand that it it could just all go away. Mm-hmm. It could just all go away and by the stroke of a pen, and a gun, and a church, and a judge. You know. I mean, if you were to talk to that generation that you're speaking of now i mean directly what would be your message to them harvey used to say you got to give them hope harvey milk used to say you got to give them hope and that's why it's hard for me to think of what to say but i think that as as a queer community in your lives right now is, is, a, is it going to be a telling moment for your futures? And rather than just assume that everything's hunky-dory, um, take action. Take action by being aware. Pay attention. Um, Instagram is fun. TikTok is fun. But if you let it absorb you, uh, that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to pacify you and make you not pay attention to what's going on. It's your life, <laughs> and it can get real shitty, unfortunately, along with climate change and everything else. This is why it's hard for me to say this, because, um, I mean, part of me wants to say, you know, learn learn to develop a taste for eating insects, because when things collapse, <laughs> that may be what you have to do, you know? Oh, my gosh, Tom, you're so dramatic. I, <laughs> I know. Well, I just, I don't know, I saw a story on it. You can fry them up, apparently, and they're good in protein, they're high in protein. It's, yeah, I don't know. But until then, until that happens, it's like Berlin in the 30s. Just live it up. Mm -hmm. You know, go out and queer, go out and queer it up. You know, get, work those heels, work those fishnets, go out and have fun and, and just be kind to one another. Mm -hmm. You know, just be kind. I mean, it sounds like you're calling for awareness, self-awareness and unity some like a t- kind of unity we have yet to achieve as a community at this day and age. It takes a con- no. We've done this before. Mm-hmm. It was called the AIDS crisis. Okay, we have circle. We have all men and men, women, and now I would say everybody in between, all spectrum. Is, you know, okay, everybody need has to have that outside force to circle the wagons. And mm-hmm. and when there's you know we're all divisive when everything's cool. We've all got our own thing. I like this. They like that. I don't want them over here. I want to be with these people and all that. That's all well and good. But when you have a common enemy or a common threat, um, that's when we can do really amazing things in this community. And, and I use the community. I, usually community is a drinking game. You know that we do that with title holders when they stand up and make their speeches. I'm not going to say the word community in my speech. Oh, the, all the bitter old title holders in the back all take a shot every time some newbie comes up and goes, I love the little community. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a whole speech in the last five seconds just to, uh, everyone's waiting to take a shot. I'm just going to wait and say, community. Walk hey. off stage. <laughs> That'll be the humor portion. <laughs> that, that, that'll be the humor portion. 
Oh my gosh. Well, Tom, we're going to take a break for right now. And I guess we're going to grab a glass of wine, you guys. Um, until next time, stay tuned for part two and part three. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Twitter as Branded Bullet LA. Thanks again for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky. Okay. Oh, 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 oh,